Acts chapter 21, verses 1 through 17 is the sermon text this evening. Acts chapter 21, verses 1 through 17. We'll take Paul to Jerusalem and then we'll leave him there for one Sunday uh, with Dave Chilton in the pulpit, our regional home missionary, preaching to us morning and evening, also uh, teaching the Sunday school. But for now, let's uh, let's give our attention to God's word. Acts chapter 21, verse one. Now, it came to pass that when we, we had departed from them and set sail running a straight course, we came to cause uh, the, uh, the following day to Rhodes and from there to Patera and finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia. We went aboard and set sail. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre for there the ship was to unload her cargo and finding disciples. We stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. When we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went our way. And they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city. And we knelt down on the shore and prayed. When we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship and they returned home. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemus greeted the brethren and stayed with them one day. On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Abagus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt, and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when we would not be persuaded, he, he would not be persuaded, we ceased saying, The will of the Lord be done. And after those days, we packed and went up to Jerusalem. Also, some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain mason uh, of Cyprus and uh, an early disciple who's, uh, with whom we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. Let us pray together. Dear Lord, we thank you once more for the blessing of your word, and we ask you that we might be strengthened now by the preaching of it. It is, as ever, a display of weakness. Indeed, we might even humbly say, oh God, your word is a display of weakness. It's contemptible in the eyes of the world, and yet we find something quite powerful as Christian people. So, too, we find in the preaching. There's very little outward glory in it, Lord, uh, very little to impress and commend itself to the world, and yet to the believer we find your grace at work in our souls, or at least we pray that we would. So we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we find Luke and Paul uh, making their way in haste to Jerusalem. And uh, as I say, by, by the time we're done, we'll leave him there uh, for a week and then we'll take up uh, the narrative there with Paul in Jerusalem. As ever, uh, we have the sense that this journey is moving along. There's many uh, very quick uh, very quick uh, 
journal entries, we could call them, where he says, well, we went here to here to here to here. But then there are snapshots along the way, as, for instance, he gives us a sense of what happened in the home of Philip, the evangelist. And by the way, isn't it interesting to see that Philip the deacon now became Philip the evangelist? Uh, I, I could say a great deal about that, uh, but I'll, I'll just I'll just bring that to your attention. Well, now Philip was an evangelist. And uh, and we see what happened when Paul stayed uh, in the home with him and his four daughters. We also see what happened when Abigail came down and spoke to Paul. But the overall impression of these 17 verses is that of haste. They're hurrying. They're trying uh, to get to Jerusalem as quickly as they possibly could. For we read in chapter 20, verse 16, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Well, there was no time to stop in uh, Ephesus. Uh, he, he merely called from Miletus, the Ephesian elders. He preached to them there, as we saw last time. But on the narrative goes, he's still hurrying to be in Jerusalem. And there's a series of points uh, that I could make here about this. Uh, the first of which is... Uh, Something I'm almost reluctant to say, and certainly something I don't want to make too much of, but something needs to be said, because it does seem obvious in the narrative of Luke, that is, including uh, the Gospel of Luke and the, uh, the book of Acts of the Apostles, Luke is drawing attention, as we saw in the scripture reading, to the similarities between uh, Jesus' journey to Jerusalem and Paul's. There are obvious similarities. Now, I don't think for a moment... That Luke was simply telling the story in such a way that it would seem that Paul resembled our master. I think the reality is something more like this. Uh, the similarities are due to the fact that our Lord was calling his disciples, Paul included, uh, to take up their cross and follow him. And so there were bound to be these similarities between the disciples and their master. In fact, Jesus had said as much to them many times as they treated me so they will treat you. And that is what Paul was experiencing here. Now, Paul wasn't going to Jerusalem as Jesus had done to die for sinners. Thank God, as I said uh, earlier on, or maybe I said it in the prayer. I don't remember when I said it, but that work is finished. Paul didn't go to Jerusalem to die for sinners. In fact, he didn't even go to Jerusalem to die. But he did go to Jerusalem to suffer at the hands of, of sinners in following his master. But thank God we can say the work of dying for sinners had been done. It was complete. And now Paul knew something about that himself. He was a man who persecuted the church of God. Now he was one as a disciple of Jesus, redeemed and saved by grace, whose sins like yours and mine was forgiven by the blood of that Savior who was going to suffer for him. Well, let us just notice a few of the similarities. Both were determined to get there. That's obvious. Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. Luke doesn't say the same exact thing, but it's obvious that Paul was determined to get Jerusalem to Jerusalem. In fact, there was nothing that could discourage him. There was nothing that could dissuade him. If in Corinth he was afraid of suffering, now he was determined. And there wasn't anyone in the world who could talk him out of it, even though we see some of the disciples sought to do so. And so there was... There was something important about Jerusalem. Again, here's a point I could spend some time on, and I'm not going to. But there was something important in the mind of Jesus and in the mind of Paul about Jerusalem. Both uh, men went there with the certainty of suffering there at the hands of the Jews. Both men predicted it in advance. They told the disciples, this is going to happen to me. They both had to endure the disciples seeking to dissuade them. 
You see the disciples here saying, please don't go, Paul. Well, do you remember Peter saying the same? Far be it from you, Lord. And, and what our Lord had to say to Peter, Peter, you're not setting your minds on the things of God, but on, or rather the thing. Well, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Well, Paul had to endure the same kind of thing. And yet they both went on in spite of not only the certainty of sufferings, but the protests of those whom they love. They both went on determined to do so. Both men saw this as the unfolding of the will of God, something that they must do. In other words, something that they were not free to do otherwise. This was not some unfortunate happening. This was not Jesus on a suicide mission or Paul on a suicide mission. This was the will of God made clear to each. And happily, we find even the people who protested coming to say the will of the Lord be done in verse 14. I hope to make much of that in the sermon. But the second point, having said that, and I don't want to say any more about that. The second point that I would make concerns the providence of God. Now, for the next men's breakfast in Thomas Watson's book, you'll be reading. Hopefully you have already, but if not, hopefully you'll be reading this week about the providence of God. Now, I read that chapter this week while I was preparing the sermon. And I said, you know, there's a lot in there for this sermon because this is really a text about the providence of God. And, and beyond that, let me say, I think I'm going to have an awful lot to say about the providence of God in the sermons to come. Because what we find is Paul on the way to Jerusalem and then from Jerusalem on the way to Rome. And the thing that we're going to notice more than anything else is the hand of God that is guiding the early church in the life of the Apostle Paul. And so let me begin Uh, with many helps from Thomas Watson, uh, to preach a sermon on the providence of God. Notice how it happens in the life of the Apostle Paul, how he experienced God's providence. First, he receives a revelation. In other words, he begins with God's word. He didn't have the New Testament in those days. He did have the Old Testament, and the Spirit in those days were making things clear to these people. The Spirit was making things clear to Paul in particular. Now, this was something that Paul enjoyed in a special way, like the prophets before him, since he was an apostle. He received as an apostle clear, unmistakable communications from the Spirit. And that's what we mean when we speak of inspiration, uh, that they were inspired by the Spirit. They were made aware by the Spirit of the will of God in such a way that they could say, this is the will of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. The prophets and the apostles were able to do so in a way that we cannot, though we can always look to the Bible and we can do so in that way. Chapter 20, verse 23, he says, well, I should begin in verse 22. Now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city saying that chains and tribulations await me. Now, we can look at this in two ways, and I think we're justified to look at it in two ways. Uh, On the one hand, the Spirit was testifying to him in these cities through the prophets, prophets like Abigus. And we get a snapshot of that here, what happened in Caesarea. The prophets were telling him in every city as they were filled with the Spirit, Paul, you must go on to Jerusalem and you will be bound as you go there. If you enjoyed uh, comfort uh, in Corinth, you are going to enjoy, or or you are going to endure, rather, difficulties in this journey. So it was the result of prophecy. I I notice that uh, many of the commentaries uh, wish to limit it to that. 
But I would also say, as I've just been indicating, that as an apostle, he also enjoyed a measure of this himself. In other words, he didn't just need the prophets to make it clear to him, but he was among the prophets. And he was able, as a result of that, to enjoy these direct communications of the Spirit. Revelation was made to him in this clear and unmistakable way, in a similar way. That the Lord had done so in Corinth. You remember, the Lord dealt with Paul directly. He visited him in a dream and he said, in very different uh, fashion, he said, you don't have to worry, you're going to be safe. For this year and a half that you're here, no one is going to harm you. Now the message was something different. The Lord was telling him, the time uh, for suffering has come as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. So he was... Spoken to by the prophets, and he was also spoken to by God as one of the prophets. But what's also clear is that God was direct, he was directing his apostle by the hand of providence. And so certain things were made clear to him, as with us in his word. You begin with revelation, but then once you have some sense of what the will of God is, you see how this has a much wider application. Once you have some sense of what the will of God is, then you find yourself in the realm of providence, when you begin to try to live out that will. You're aware of what it is, but now you're going on. You're seeking to put it into practice. You're seeking to obey. Now you're in the realm of providence. And, and you're like Paul, who says, uh, not knowing the things that will happen to me. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. But what I do know is what God has made clear to me. You see, that's what it means to be in The realm of providence and even the apostle Paul as an apostle uh, did not know everything. So providence belongs in a separate category. You have God's word first, providence second. God speaks to us in his word. But then as we carry out that word and live by it, we find ourselves in the realm of providence, not the blind hand of faith. That isn't what Paul is saying. That isn't what we should ever say. But we recognize even as we say, I don't know what's going to happen. I understand that the will of the Lord will be done. The very will that he made me aware of in his word. And that's how we must read this section and what follows. Not just an interesting narrative or an interesting series of events, but the unfolding of God's providence for Paul and for the early church. One of the things that we can say about God's providence is that he has a special interest in his church. That's something that stands out in the Shorter Catechism, and it's, it's answered to the question, what is providence? And that's something that is especially evident in Scripture. God's providence has a view toward the welfare of the church. But one of the things uh, that we'll see and that I'll be saying is that that, does, that welfare doesn't always look like we might expect it would. You remember what our Lord said to the apostles in chapter 1, verse 8? Where he sets out the program for the church. He says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, the temptation when he said something like that for them and I think for us in reading Acts would be to think the Lord was saying, now this is what you're going to do. But that isn't what the Lord was saying. The Lord was saying, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do through you. And the apostles, as they were made aware of that, uh, were, again, you see, in the realm of providence. Here was the Lord making something clear in his word. You begin with his word. But then, as they were conscious of the fact that the Lord was carrying out that word, 
they realized they were in the realm of providence. This wasn't something they were doing. This is something God was doing. In other words, it wasn't as though the, the, the fulfillment of what Jesus had predicted in chapter 1, verse 8, depended upon these men, and yet they lived as though it did. But as these things began to happen as a result of their ministry, they realized, you know, it really is the Lord who's doing this. It was the Lord who was carrying out his will through the apostles. Along the way, we see, and Luke seems to be at pains to make this clear to us, even though he's in such haste, he gives us this sense of haste. He, he makes it clear throughout this hurried narrative that the Lord was strengthening Paul. In other words, as Paul was being used as an instrument in the hands of God, God was concerned with Paul's welfare as one of his, his sons and one of his servants. He was strengthening him by many, encourage, uh, many encouragements, even with a certain expectation of suffering. And so, for instance, we could see that the journeys were going well. And that's something that we'll notice again and again. Here is the providence of God. Or more importantly, I think, Paul uh, meeting with so many loving companions, both to cheer and encourage him along the way, even if at times they nearly broke his heart. But one strange fact we also notice about God's providence is that, as Thomas Watson says, and here's the first of many quotes, God saves his church strangely. So that if Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses here, here and here, all the way to the ends of the earth. Well, he, he sure goes about that in a strange way. That's what we notice. Not as we would devise, but as only God could devise. Going on with the quote, God works sometimes by contraries. He raises the church by bringing it low. That's one of the things that we notice both in our own lives and in the history of the church, but especially here in Acts. And so we see in the unfolding of God's providence that he accomplishes his will in a way that we might find objectionable, even as we read this. But certainly it was clear in the case of those who were made aware, uh, aware of God's will here that it was objectionable to them, even as it had been to Peter. The will that... Paul should suffer at the hands of the Jews in Jerusalem was all but unthinkable to these people. They protested. They pleaded with them. Please don't go, Paul. You see, they were contending with the will of God. It seems strange that God would save his church in this way. Was it not enough that the blood of Jesus be spilled? Why that of his apostles as well? How often God saves the church by bringing it low, you see. And these first Christians like us were still learning the lesson of providence. You see, there are things, surely you know this by now, there are things in God's will which are apt to break our hearts and to make us object and say, Lord, that's not something I want. That's not something I want for myself. That's not something I want for my favorite minister, whether that's Paul or someone else. And while we do not rejoice in the evil of our circumstances, we do rejoice in God's will being accomplished. Please understand the distinction. We might weep at a bleeding Savior upon a cross. We might even despise the hands that nailed him there. Hating the evil of the sin that made it necessary. And yet rejoice at the will of God being accomplished for sinners at the cross. Do you see how we can do both things at once, we do not rejoice in the evil of our circumstances, but we do rejoice in the doing of God's will. We rejoice in God overruling the evil for the good. And so, though we are aware of a great deal of evil in this world, that God is overruling for good, we submit to the will of God. 
But more than that, we ought to express our eagerness that his will be done in our lives and in the church. However, contrary, that will may run to ours. It may involve things that are objectionable to us. Things, let me say again, that are apt to break our hearts. And yet are we prepared to submit to it and to say, as these people did, the will of the Lord be done. You see, that's where we're being tested all the time as we find ourselves in the realm of providence. The unfolding of God's will. What man among us would think to lay the foundation of the church through the suffering and the martyrdom of the apostles? Who among us would think to save sinners by the death of God's only son? Again, let me just remind you how, how objectionable this was to the, to the early church. Not just the sufferings of Paul, but the sufferings of the Savior. If men could intervene, they would have. They would have put a stop to it. They would have saved Paul's life. They would have saved the life of Jesus Christ. Well, aren't you thankful that they didn't? Aren't you thankful that God overrules even the best intentions of his saints who have yet to learn the wisdom And the mystery of his providence. Here is the wisdom of God, beloved, which is wiser than man. The wisdom of man says, make all things easy, make all things smooth. The wisdom of God says, here I'm quoting the apostles, Acts chapter 14, verse 22. That through much tribulation we must enter the kingdom of God. And that's what was coming true now in the life of Paul. And so as we go on with this journey along with Paul, we'll find both things. We'll find both many encouragements along the way, whether it's success in seafaring or, or brothers to hearten and encourage them. Uh, but we'll also find trials, tribulations and affliction. As, uh, as Thomas Watson says, mercy mingled with affliction. That's what the saints enjoy in this life, mercy mingled with affliction. Though we can also speak of affliction mingled with mercy. Or, as Thomas Watson says, in this life, the providences of God are mixed. There is something sweet in them and something bitter. But what is clear is that Paul was ready for all cases. He said, I don't know what's coming. I know this, but but much I don't know. But I'm ready. I'm ready to submit. I'm ready to yield. I'm ready to give my life in the service of my Savior, even as he gave his life for my sins and for my salvation. And it's clear that the Apostle Paul meant that. You know, Peter had said this. He said, Lord Jesus, I'll suffer all things for you. And uh, he, he barely lasted a minute under the scrutiny of the question of uh, a little girl by fire. But here Paul was a man who not only adored the will of God, but he yielded to it. Do you understand the difference? You see, you can say, I love the will of God. I adore it. I love reading God's word. But if you find yourself in the, in the midst of God's providence, the unfolding of that will in your life, in history, are you willing to yield to it? I'm ready to do it, Paul says. Can you say the same? I'm ready to go all the way, as far as God will take me, even into the depths. If it should cost me my life, I'll do that. I'll do anything. And unlike Peter, when he said that, he meant it. But as we explore the issue of providence, we come to another matter, and that is the matter of guidance. As it relates to providence. Well let me try to say something about that. Because I think Luke is also giving us some guidance. About guidance. We have clear indications. This is. This is the structure of things. We have clear indications first in God's will. Of God's will in his word. 
That much is certain. In the early church, you also had prophets who spoke the word of the Lord, as Abigus did here, and also the, the daughters of Philip. Together in this category, we could put simply the counsel of other believers who have the spirit. So you begin with God's word. Then you have the counsel of other Christians helping you to understand what the will of God is. There is also on top of that, the leading of the Holy Spirit in ourselves. We have a helper. We have an advocate. Why is he there? Well, he's there to help us. Help us do what? To live out the Christian life, to live out the will of God, the will of God that he made us aware of in his word. Well, how am I to live like this? The spirit is there to help us. And so he prompts us and he leads us in the doing of God's will. Now, even if we suggest, and I think we should suggest, that the leading and the guidance of the Holy Spirit will not be as clear to us as it was to Paul, for Paul was an apostle. Nevertheless, we must realize that every believer has a measure of the Spirit. And as the Spirit is in you, Paul says, Romans chapter 8, verses 9 and 10, the Spirit is in you. If the Spirit is in you, then he is there to lead you. And he is there to convict you and to help you in living the Christian life. And so there's God's word. There is the counsel of other believers. There is the leading of the Holy Spirit. And then the last thing is prayer. We read of these men praying together. They were aware of God's will. They had counseled together. What did they do? They prayed. You say, I don't know what God's will is. I'm going to pray. Well, perhaps it won't be made clear to you. Perhaps you'll still be like, Paul. I don't know what awaits me. Still, you pray. And you go on praying until things become clear. But one thing we see here, even in the early church, is that there are oftentimes mixed signals. I wonder if you noticed this in the reading. And if you didn't, well, I'm going to make it clear to you. There is actually a case where the Holy Spirit or people through the Holy Spirit say one thing and then people through the Holy Spirit say the exact opposite. And so a man like Paul as he was seeking to understand the will of God and to live out the will of God, was getting mixed signals in the early church. And I think it's often like that. Now, this is what I mean. Verse 23 of chapter 20, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. All right, it was clear, wasn't it? Well, listen to this. Chapter 21, verse 4. And finding disciples, we stay there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. Wait a second. That doesn't seem to be right. But then we find Abigus in chapter 20, verse 11, saying very clearly, Thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews of Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. It's fascinating to see this contrast. And there are many uh, suggestions as to what the possible solution is. And yet, one of the things that I would like to suggest is that this is more or less inevitable and that I'm really not troubled by this. I think in a situation where people are sensitive to God's will and the spirit is active, that you're all but bound to see this. Even in a setting where the spirit is poured out in large measure, you are bound to see this. Spirit-filled believers contending even at times for opposite things. Why is this? Well, here is my explanation. I confess it is impossible to be too dogmatic here because Luke doesn't uh, untie the knot for us, so to speak. But this is my answer, what I think is going on here. Let us grant that these people really were speaking through the Spirit. They were full of the Spirit. They were sensitive to the Spirit's promptings. They were sensitive to the needs of one another in the church. 
But this brings us back to something I said earlier, and I wasn't exactly quoting Watson, but I did get this from Watson. The trouble is, is that uh, some believers sensitive to the spirit are, alar- are alarmed by the evil of our circumstances. They were alarmed out of a genuine love for Paul that he should suffer. It was not that the, the spirit prompted these believers to tell Paul something different than he had already told him. It was through the spirit, not through natural affection, but through the spirit that they were animated by a love for Paul that pleaded for his safety. Yes, we see this love became a little misguided, yet we detect nothing of resentment in Paul because of it. He even speaks later of how they broke his heart. He was not immune to the same feelings. Animated by the same love, not for himself, but for them. If he was reluctant at all to obey the spirit, it was only because he, through the same spirit, would not break their hearts on account of his sufferings. And so it was through the spirit that they were animated with feelings of love and a concern for Paul's welfare and and, and recoiled at the prospect of the evil that awaited him in Jerusalem. So you see how this works out in practice. You can have a kind of mixed signal if you're not sensitive to God's will. If you're not clear about it, then you may begin to give in to these other pressures. But the really important thing is to put God's will first, to be able to say, as these Christians did, the will of the Lord be done, verse 14. And when that is clear, whatever else you may feel and what what others may be saying, that is what you must do. At any rate, it is clear that God's will became the settled conviction for them all. Again, verse 14. And so you don't ignore the counsel of other Christians. You've got an idea of what God wants you to do. You've got the scriptures. You've prayed as you should. As you should. And then you have other believers counsel you. And yes, there may be some degree of mixed signals that you find along the way. But if we're eager to know the will of God, we will be able to say the will of God be done. Now, I don't mean when that becomes our settled conviction at the end of this process that everything has now become clear to us. I I doubt it was even to Paul at this point. Still, he was saying, I don't know exactly what to expect. I know what I must do, but I don't know what to expect. And so what did he do? having expressed his resolution to do God's will. Well, he just went on. He just continued on. You see, you can only deliberate for so long. You can only stop and counsel and think and pray for so long before you've got to act. And that's what Paul does here. Once you've got some idea of what God's will is, the only thing left to do is to act. You see, first you've yielded and submitted to it, but having done that, you go forward. Understanding that God's providence will see to his will being done. You see, in a sense, that's the most liberating realization of all. It wasn't left to me to do his will. I'm going to go forward, but it's left to him and he will see to the doing of his own will. But let us also see, again, on this question of providence, as Thomas Watson says, providence is the Christian's diary, not his Bible. And what a helpful line that is. He goes on, it is good to observe providence, but we must not we must not make it our rule to walk by. 
In other words, you don't arrive at guidance that is what you should do by consulting the book of providence. And many Christians go awry as a result of trying to do so. For in in consulting the book of providence, you may find many things you don't understand and even things which are disagreeable to you. Things which in themselves run contrary to God's revealed will. Again, the evil of our circumstances. And so the thing to do is what Luke does here. You just observe them and you record them in your book, in your diary. And you reflect upon them in retrospect. But you make the Bible your guide and your rule, not the book of Providence. Providence is the Christian's diary, not his Bible. That's what he means. He means, well, he says in the next line, it's not the rule to walk by. It's good to observe Providence, but not to make it our rule to walk by. As for the unfolding of that will, we say, I'm ready to do and suffer whatever he has in store for me. For that same will revealed to me tells me of greater things that await me on the other side. I don't know what awaits me here. God hasn't told me, not in any kind of detail, but he's told me a great deal in his word of what awaits me when the end of my race is achieved. The glories that await the believer, whatever he suffers in this life. And besides, his word is full of the most tender The most tender words of a loving father to his children, his tender love for us, for me in Christ. And when I read of that in his word, though, I say I do not know what awaits me. Will I not then unreservedly give all and do all for him? For I am bought with a price, Paul would later say later say. Well, actually, I think he said it a little earlier. At any rate, he said in 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 one of the Corinthian letters, I'm bought with a price and thus I live for him. In all things, I yield myself, my body, my all to him. I'm ready to die for his sake. If that's what pleases him most, I arrive at that not by consulting the book of providence, but by consulting the book of God, the Bible in which the will of God is made unmistakably clear to us. And in time, uh, I will know well enough what he has in store for me. In other words, as I. As I live out in the realm of his providence, his will will become clear. But until I should come to see what he has in store for me, I will be found saying the will of the Lord be done. That is the will of the Lord be done by him, as of course it will. But also the will of the Lord be done by me, even though I don't know what will be found and what awaits me on uh, on uh, the other side of, of this day or the next. Nevertheless, my commitment remains the doing of the will of God. My interest is in serving him. That's what you find in Paul. That's what you find him expressing not only here, but in all of his epistles, his unreserved commitment to serving the Lord. And that must be, here's my final word, that must be the commitment of every Christian. Wherever we may find ourselves and wherever we may be going, is that your commitment? That the will of the Lord be done, that it be done by him in your life and that you will yield and submit to it, but also that you will do it yourself. And if he should bring you low, if he should save you by afflicting you. Can still you say his will is best because it's good for me? Do you find him saying in his word, all things work together for good to those who love him, who are called according to his purpose? That's his promise to you. And that's your belief in that is being tested every day that you are living in the realm of his providence as the book of his providence is being written. Well, do you believe it or not? 
And can you say his will is good? It's the best thing for me. Well, if he brings you low, do you say it? Or what about this? What if he should like here we read in this passage? What if he should take away one of your favorite Christians? You know, the Lord has done that to me many times in my life and I wasn't very happy about it. And I didn't just tell the Christian who was leaving me that I told the Lord that. Well, here's the will of the Lord. Are we willing to yield to it then? Though it make you weep, will you rejoice because it was God's will that made it so? One final Thomas Watson quote will do uh, as we close the sermon. He says, the providences of God are sometimes dark and our eyes dim and we can hardly tell what to make of them. But when we cannot unriddle providence, let us believe that it will work together for good of the elect. Amen. And let us respond in praise by standing together and singing hymn 544.